You're never going to get to that bigger company if you can't build the company today, this week, this month, this year. So I like to look at it every day when I came to work is how can I move the ball forward today? So balancing that a company is built day by day with being able to have those strategic questions that you know where you should focus. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-to-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Kelly, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Jubin. Thank you for having me. I am going to start by reading your background back to you, so your resume, and you tell me what I'm missing or fill in the blanks for me. You started at Stanford, you got your BA, graduated with honors. You then went into book sales, actually concurrently while you were undergrad at Stanford at the Southwestern Company for four years, built a bit of a reputation as a uh, excellent bookseller. You did sales and training at Dale Carnegie Training for one year. You then went on to do mortgage sales at Bank of America for about three years, then went to get your MBA at University of Pennsylvania Wharton. You then went on to be a consultant at McKinsey for a brief stint. You were a consultant at Bain for a brief stint. And then you went and grew into the VP of sales role at Ad Hoc. Were there for about six years. And about 10 years after that, BlackBerry actually ended up acquiring that company. You then went on to be the first sales hire at what at the time was a 10-person company, Tableau. And you grew into the EVP of sales. You had an organization of hundreds or maybe thousands of people, 850 million of revenue. And today, that company, Tableau, three years after you left, has been acquired by Salesforce for $9 billion dollars. And then now you're a director on many boards, an advisor to many boards, Amparity, Data World. You are a professor of go-to-market at the University of Washington. And when I was doing my research, I was very excited to see that. You're a board director for Lucid, board advisor for Hyperproof, and lastly, a board director for Fastly. And it's been just over two years since you've been doing that. I will pause there. The only thing that was... Different is Tableau was actually acquired for over $15 billion, but the rest of that was okay. Yeah, just $6 billion off. That is a hell of a background. And I'll tell you, you're as close to sales celebrity as sales celebrity could get. And so I have heard you on- (laughs) I I think you might have a very small bar for how you identify (laughs) celebrities. (laughs) I have heard you on different shows and podcasts, and I'm going to try and- do things a little bit differently, not try and ask the same questions that others have asked. I think your story is incredible. I want to start by reading, obviously, we're going to spend some time on Tableau and your experience there, because I think it shaped a big part of your professional career and resume. I want to start by going through your bio of Tableau and your role there. As EVP of sales, and I know you wouldn't do this, so I'm going to do this on your behalf. (laughs) As EVP of sales, Kelly led Tableau's worldwide sales and field operations team. She joined Tableau as the company's first salesperson one month prior to the launch of V1.0 in 2005. 
and Kelly helped build Tableau into a multi-billion dollar company as a key member of the executive team. She grew Tableau's field operations from zero to 850 million in revenue and managed over half of Tableau's global team as the company rose to over 3,400 employees. She helped navigate multiple stages of growth through IPO, global expansion, et cetera, et cetera. I think the point is, it is unbelievable and incredibly unique to see someone go through so many stages of a company's growth and stick it out and ride it all the way through because there's a lot of nuances in between that are challenging and hard. And I think retrospectively, when you look back or when someone else might look back, it's like, oh, she got lucky. What a great run. I think what a lot of people might miss is that there was a lot of crap, I'm sure, in between and just pain that comes with scale of doing that incredible run. So congratulations. It's unbelievable. Oh, thank you. I had fantastic people all around in the organization, which made that really possible. Did you think at any point Salesforce would be a good potential acquirer for Tableau? Well, I think when you're in the midst of building the business, what you really want to be doing is focusing on building the best sustainable independent business. That's kind of what we were thinking is that we we had our mission to help people see and understand data. And what we wanted to do is help as many people as possible be able to answer their own questions and empower them to get their own answers. And so uh, many companies are always thinking about the exit. What's it going to be like to have an IPO? What about this acquisition? How do you get to the next level? And what we were really thinking about is just how could we help the greatest number of people possible? So I wouldn't say that we were thinking about who was a potential acquisition target, though if you are to look at who is helping individuals and companies to make sense of their data, who have values and who is very missionary focused, both in terms of the mission of what the company is doing, as well as the values, there is a lot of alignment and synergies there. Let's go back to you were at Stanford. I'd love if you could share the story of how you ended up at Tableau. Oh, okay. Well, that's a ways between back in college and then going up. But when I was at Stanford, I had heard about this crazy job that was selling educational books door to door and, and college students ran their own business in the summer. If they did well, they could come back and be managers. And this was super intriguing. Actually, my cousin had done it and that's how I had heard about it. There had been no teams at Stanford. There were thousands of college students that did this all around the world. The company had been around since 1868. And I had heard that you moved cross country, you started your own business, you went door to door. It built a lot of grit, huge amount of character building, but you basically were entrepreneurial, ran your own business. People made a fair amount of money. And I thought, oh, I can do that. I can go do something. I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial in my career. And so that's what I did. And I think that experience of selling for my four summers while in college and then right after I graduated, books door to door, where I was working over 80 hours a week, I was carrying this huge 25 pound book bag door to door, talk about developing grit. I mean, that was really what we're doing. People were slamming doors in your face. You had to figure out how to get yourself up, continue going to the next door. But I think the main thing that that taught me is over the course of those four summers, I spoke with over 12,000 families in their home. And you see all kinds of things in families' homes, but talking about education and the importance of education. And what I found from that is, I really loved helping people and I loved having a positive impact on these families and the kids and their education. 
And I really enjoyed hearing everyone's unique stories. And so that I think is my, my first, I knew that I was destined to go into sales. So I think I have to talk about that. Although I did sales for my entire life, I was always the one selling cookies and candy bars and I sold shoes when I was in high school. But Southwestern was that idea of, hey, I want to do something entrepreneurial. I want to be able to be instrumental in building a business. And I really love sales. That started when I was selling books. So then I thought, okay, well, I really enjoyed helping others, not only on the sales side, but doing that development of people, which got me to Dale Carnegie training. And as I kind of went through after business school, I felt like if I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, I had to understand more about the strategy side. So that was my venture into strategic management consulting. And then ad hoc kind of helped me first with doing the startup. The real story of how I got to Tableau, I think it's important to know I wanted to have an impact. I wanted to work for a company that was making a difference, doing something disruptive. I knew I wanted to do sales. I also knew I wanted to do it with a group of people who I super admired and I could learn from, from the people standpoint. And that's really what led me to Tableau. The funny part about Tableau is it all actually circled back to selling books because that was through a Stanford connection of people that I had known and people had said, hey, when a company's ready to go hire their first salesperson, you should go back and talk to Kelly. She said, crazy job selling books door to door. And so that's how I knew Tom Walker because he was our CFO and his wife and I had gone to school together and I had met Christian Chabot, who was Tableau CEO through that whole network. Incredible story. Something that you said that I thought was interesting is that you always knew that you were born to be in sales and that was your calling, but you still ended up going to business school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find interesting is that it's in you. You know that this is going to be something that you do for a very long time, but you still thought business school was the right move for you at that point. Why? And I know you mentioned well-rounded, but maybe you could unpack that a little bit more. Jim, and I think the challenge of being not only an entrepreneur, but also being a sales leader is so many people grow up through the sales ranks. But as you become more senior in sales or as you become more of whether it's a founding team or a leader in whatever organization, so much of it is around seeing around corners, helping with strategy, helping with perspective that you can contribute and carry your weight, not just on the sales and go-to-market side, but on the strategic questions, on the finance questions, on the operational questions, on the product questions. They're all super interlinked, how you engage with customers. So I had majored in political science, and I was very, back then, they don't call it now, but there was fuzzy and techie. I was very fuzzy in college. It was all about the social sciences learning about negotiations, how people interact, which is super helpful in sales. But you need to understand all of the quantitative side and more technical sides of business, product sides of business. And so after doing that for a number of years, I thought, wow, I've developed a lot of the soft skills and I can interact with people on the sales side. But if I really want to be instrumental in building a business, I could get it on the job, potentially, maybe, or I could go to business school 
And when I went to business school, here's a funny story. People thought I was insane. And I went to Wharton. I think my class at Wharton had 784 people in my class. And there was one other person that came from sales that I had met. There was almost nobody that came from sales. There were mostly consultants, business folks, not-for-profit, other leaders and execs of all different functions, but not much in sales. And actually, I think in a lot of ways, this helped in just the whole diversity of opinion and thought in my class in business school. But I think this is what we're seeing now in the boardroom too, is having that diversity of thought is really helpful. And so I was able to come with the sales perspective and then realize, well, I need to know about all these other functions and all these other divisions if I'm going to actually be a savvy entrepreneur or part of a founding team. And part of the reason I was recruited at the strategic consulting, and this is a bit of an aside, is so many of the people that went in consulting had done these more quantitative and technical analyst type jobs. And then when people later on were promoted to partner, when they had to actually go sell the clients, they didn't have that skill set. So they had said, hey, Kelly, you could help us later on if you stay in this track because you actually have a lot of these sales and people skills and you'll have to develop more of the quantitative skills. So it was very beneficial to be in consulting. The challenge was I definitely value that I did that. I learned so much about strategic framing, how to ask the right questions, seeing around corners, appreciations for all these different functions, which I think helped me to elevate faster and potentially scale as a sales leader. The flip side though, I realized if I was a consultant, I was going to have to put in seven to 10 years before I could actually do that sales side. So pretty quickly I said, this is valuable, but I want to get back into doing day-to-day what I love, which is sales. Yeah. In hindsight, seems like you made the right choice. <laughs> Tell me about the process of the interaction around Tableau. And what I mean by that is the founders come to you. They say, Kelly, we think you sell books better than anybody. Would you like to sell software for a company that hasn't quite been built yet? Mm. You know, and I'm dramatizing it. But what were the ingredients that you saw that you thought, you know what, maybe there's something here? Actually, it's a funny story of how I actually started was when I had heard that there was a sales role at Tableau and I read the job description. Now, remember, I had done these jobs at Dale Carnegie training. I had sold mortgages at Bank of America. I had had little short forays into management consultant. And then I worked at Ad Hoc on and off meeting sales and business development. But the biggest team that I had there, I think, was 16 people. It was pretty small. And so when I was looking to join Tableau, the job requirements were ideally someone who had sold big deals for enterprises, someone who actually had a background in business intelligence and data analytics. So I have not sold enterprise sales. I didn't know really much about enterprise sales, if anything. I knew nothing about business intelligence and data analytics in terms of living in the space. I had gone to Wharton and I had done management consultants, so I'd operated as an analyst. So that was my understanding of it. The idea was someone who had actually helped to take a company public, had been through multiple IPOs. I had never done that. I'd worked for public companies, had been in software for a long time. There were all these requirements. 
And we kind of joked about it because at the bottom it said smart. And I thought, okay, well, smart in sales. So I thought, <laughs> okay, well, maybe someone qualifies, maybe have some elements of smart, depending on whoever's judging. And I had done sales. And so when the CEO and I had met initially, I looked through and said, I don't meet one specific requirement of this job. But we hit it off. And then the story started from there. So it's interesting how things turn out. I think for me, I love the mission early on at Tableau. The mission was defined before I started to help people see and understand data. And I had been a sales leader or trying to be a sales leader of not that big of a team. I was very quantitatively focused. I had been in consulting. I had thought, wow, if I had had a tool like Tableau or a product like Tableau when I was in consulting, I wouldn't have had to iterate until three or four o'clock in the morning on these different slicing and dicing everything in Excel, which I wasn't particularly good at. And I could have spent more time actually driving value for our customers, which is what they wanted. So I was super impressed by the value proposition. I love data and I found it super infuriating that I couldn't answer my own questions and I had just been stuck in this data hell for so long in consulting, which made it much easier with Tableau. But then also the founding team, there weren't many people there, but the founders were super passionate about what they were doing. They were extremely committed. They were smart and talented and they were just really good people. I felt like I could learn and elevate and be surrounded by people who were all really in this to go build something together. No big egos, just a group of people that wanted to hire other smart, talented people who were very passionate about the mission and really committed. Did you have any reservations, some of the typical reservations of joining a small company like that or that XYZ big companies already doing it mm. or the risk profile is too high? Were there any reservations or any things that obviously now in hindsight seem like a smaller risk than they really were at the time? I don't think that's true. It was a big risk at a time. I mean, so regardless if you can see where things went, building a company is scary and hard and risky. And it takes the right type of person to be willing to make those trade-offs. So if you're a super risk-averse person, that wants everything paved in front where you know what every single twist and turn is going to be, then entrepreneurship is probably not for you. It's scary and it's risky. And I wanted to do something where I could roll up my sleeves and really be part potentially of building something that was really strong and unique and special. And even if it hadn't worked well, and even if it hadn't gone the path of where we went, I feel like taking those big risks is where you learn the most. And if you take really small bite-sized steps, you might get there on the path, but you risk big and you get big payoffs. And I wasn't even thinking about it for a big payoff financially. I wasn't even thinking about that. For me, it was, I've always looked at things in my career progression about having a growth mindset and where can I actually learn and grow the most. And by being involved in a small company, where I was the first salesperson, then I was driving sales at a company where I was very passionate about what we were doing with a team of super smart, compassionate, inspirational other people. 
we all were learning from each other and we were all doing things together and we were making mistakes every single day, but we were learning from that and continuing to build and grow. So yes, massive, massive risks. And anyone that works at a startup knows you don't know what the outcome is going to be and you just have to put your head down and go. Yeah, I always say that it takes a special kind of risky person to not only go to a startup, but to be in sales at a startup because <laughs> you're as variable as variable can get. In the early days, as the first AE at the time, how did you measure yourself? Did you create metrics for yourself? Did they give you metrics? Because it's just, you're pulling things out of thin air. You know, if you come one month before the product's even released to market yet. So how did you think about measuring yourself? Well, it's interesting because often sales leaders and especially founders ask me this question all the time. As you actually later on have a repeatable, scalable model where you have more data, where it's more clear what do you need to do or what's an average order size or how many calls you need to do a day, it makes it a bit more clear about what your metrics should be. Early days, when you don't have the recipe for success, it's a constant iteration. So I like to talk about it of having these bite-sized chunks of what you can control. So all you can measure is what you can control. You might not know what the outcomes are, but you can know what the inputs are. So early days at Tableau, we were trying to build this land and expand engine. This was before we built the whole enterprise motion in a scalable way. And so it was really just about how many at-bats you could get, how many hits depended on how many at-bats. So we were really looking at velocity. How many people could you reach out to? How many calls could you make? How many conversations? How many meetings could you track? And then starting to track all those things is as you had those meetings, how many were moving into the pipeline? So first was just how many contacts and how many touches were you doing? was a very important metric. A second one was how quickly and how effectively were we moving through the stage of the pipe? So early days when you're just having conversations, you can't necessarily count how long is it taking to get to closed one where you're actually booking your purchase order, but you can talk about how many conversations are you having where they're just an automatic no versus how many are going to the next stage of engagement or consideration and then moving to the demo. So looking at how are we moving them through, that was another really important metric. And I think the third metric was celebrating every win, regardless of what that win was. So certainly, absolutely celebrating every closed one deal. We had a bell and we were ringing that bell and I was screaming and going crazy, even if it was one sale early on you know, for $999 at a discount. We didn't do discounts. Pablo was known for not doing discounts, but we did do discounts in that first year. And all of that were wins. And wins were when a customer said something great. When we had free download trials, we were celebrating how many trials were downloaded every single day who was actually installing and activating their trials. So we were looking at all those indicators that later on we were still tracking, but that wasn't how the sales team was measured. Yeah, it's funny how quickly things can change too, right? Like I remember when I was at my previous startup, early days, 
the 20K deal, it might as well have been a $200 million deal. Like it meant so much to the business and me and everybody. It was just so validating, just getting that logo on board, having them pay for the product. And then, you know, we got acquired and I was talking to one of the SEs that I used to work with and he says, oh, we don't even pick up the phone for a deal less than 200K. And I was just reminding him like, hey, remember the days of what those literal 10, 20K deals meant to us? And not because it meant a lot to you and I, and certainly not because it meant a lot because of our commissions, but because of how much it meant to the business and what that meant for the engineers that built the product that someone's now willing to pay for. It's a really special moment in time, the infancy of these companies. Special moments for $1,000 deals, let me tell you. I mean, you talk about 10 and 20K in 2005 and 2006, those were few and far between, and we were celebrating those, but a $5,000 deal or a $3,000 deal, that was golden. So people look at things now and say, okay, well, you're aiming for that million-dollar deal or the multi-million-dollar deal. That's true, but it starts much smaller than that. We were celebrating the free trials. Just download yeah. the product. You can't buy anything unless you test it out first. So baby steps. And I also remember how much of a team sport it was at the time. At some point it becomes sales rep and SE maybe. And at that point, again, in its infancy, CEOs are coming to every sales call. They want to come. And you almost need that credibility just to get a 5K deal done. So it's incredible watching the evolution of that. Speaking of evolution, I think one of the things that really impresses me with your role and growth is how you dealt with change management. And what I mean by that specifically is that one of the hardest things to do in an extremely fast growing company is rolling with the punches. Mm. The ground shifts underneath you faster than you even know what happened. And that might be a mandate to go hire 30 people, that might be a go-to-market strategy change, that might be a product change, that might be a tough deal that was lost, whatever it might be. What was your mindset on how to roll with the punches. Does that question make sense? Let me try and then we can circle back if that's not where you're headed. Fair, yeah. When you're building and scaling a company, there's always this balance of where you want to go long-term, but then how you actually can build the company day by day. And I think that this helps to really navigate that change management because so many companies are so focused on where they want to be. They want to be the next unicorn. Maybe there's 15 people, 20 people, hundred people at the company, and they want to be the next unicorn. They want to be that next multi-billion dollar company, that big IPO, that they start thinking about all the things that need to be built to sustain hundreds of million in ARR, to have thousands of people on their team. And that's good to a point, but the difference between where they are now and what it's going to take to get there is so vast. There's going to be so many different stages of growth. You can't get too far ahead of your skis and planning for things that are so far down the road. At the same time, if you're just taking everything that falls in your seat. So as you mentioned, you have this customer deal you're hoping for, and then it doesn't happen. And you have all these little emergencies, I like to call them those fire drills. If you're only dealing with the fire drills that are hitting you, you end up becoming extremely reactive. And then it's very difficult to be ahead of the change management. So it's a balance of these two things. And the way I like to think about it is 
You're never going to get to that bigger company if you can't build the company today, this week, this month, this year. So I like to look at it every day when I came to work is how can I move the ball forward today? How can I help a customer today or multiple customers? How can I help employees to develop and do better today? How can I help to hire and scale and onboard those next people who are going to be critical for the company of where they need to go today. And they're going to help us to go tomorrow. So balancing that a company is built day by day with being able to have those strategic questions that you know where you should focus. And this is the next takeaway. So first you have the balance. So you're not too reactive. How can you build the business day by day? still thinking about where you want to go, knowing your North Star about where you're ultimately going so that you can balance the reactive with the proactive. But then the next part is really knowing the vital few because it's all about focus. Companies try to do way too many things and then these changes and these twists and turns can massively derail you. But if you know this year, I'm focusing on these three things, or in this chapter, in this stage, these are the most important. Then you can take care of everything that needs to be done today and make sure you're balancing the urgent and important with taking care of those vital few that must be done. And I think all of those are instrumental with managing through the change because you can't do too many things at a time. You have to be really, really focused to navigate through those changes of those different stages. Does that make sense? It does. I think your point about vital few is an interesting one. My framework for approaching this is a priority matrix. And I've done this forever. Every quarter of every year that I've been in sales or not, I've done a priority matrix and I build a matrix and I say high impact, high priority, and then it cascades down from there. And I should be spending 80 plus percent of my time in the upper right, high impact, high priority quadrant. And I literally list out every single thing that I do day to day, every activity, tedious or big that I do, and then I place them in these buckets. And the most important part of that exercise is not only for me to know where I'm spending my time, but actually getting agreement from the rest of the team. I did this yesterday with our partnership. I showed them my priority matrix and I said, this is where I'm spending my time. Would you spend it in other places, right? And making sure that in such open-ended roles where there is a fire drill every day, there's a million things that come across your desk, maybe it's not the 10 emails that you got that morning that are actually high impact. Maybe those are just high priority and those aren't the things that you should be tackling at the beginning of the day or even that week for that matter. And so I think that vital few is a really good framework for approaching what could be a really open-ended job. I agree. Hiring for culture fit. That's something that I wanted to make sure we discussed. It's something that you've talked about that I think is a really interesting and somewhat different perspective than others might have. What you say is if someone is a 10 out of 10 on culture, but eight out of 10 on skill, you much prefer that to a 10 out of 10 on skill and an eight out of 10 on culture. Could you maybe unpack that? Yeah, there's a lot there. We could take that in multiple different directions. First though, The key to building great companies and great teams are people. And oftentimes people will ask about what is the trick to have the best product? What's the trick to have the best strategy? You can have all those things, but people are going to make or 
break the difference in everything that any team or company does. And I truly, truly believe that the foundation of everything is people. And when we talk about people, it's not just people that are super smart and talented and have a great resume. And I used to talk about cultural fit. I think now I've evolved the way I explain that is more cultural additive because the culture is changing and evolving every day. And you want to be able to contribute positively to that culture to help take the company to where that needs to go. And especially now with all the diversity of thought and diversity of opinion, you don't only want someone that is a fit with what is conformed in those opinions now. So I think that is a really good or important piece to note is you want that cultural additive that's going to help build and complement the culture and improve the culture. But when you think about people, for me, if I were to think about the top qualities for a great salesperson or the top qualities for a great sales team member or the top qualities for a good leader, they're all the same. Now, there's different tweaks in terms of the skills that they would have. But in terms of the behavior and personality attributes around willing to work hard, being passionate and being ethical, being respectful, being honest, being good communicators, wanting to hear other people's stories in sales, being a great storyteller is really important. For many great founders, that is a really important skill too, or someone on the founding team has to do that. And so if you think about what a company's values are, it's less about the culture of what is the personality per se. It's more about those core values of the company, which for Tableau, where we're honest, we respect each other. We were on a mission. We built great products. We used those products. And then the list went, we delight our customers. So people that were really focused and their behavior traits were very aligned with what our core values were, to me, I would take those every day. If there was a salesperson who had been there, done that, super high ego, wouldn't roll up their sleeves, but had showed that they had done enterprise sales, they weren't going to thrive well in Tableau where we appreciated hard work, people were who were very committed to the mission of helping people see and understand data, people who are super respectful of each other's, those who are honest, who didn't have the dog-eat-dog environment. And if we had someone who was a real driver, who was committed to succeeding, who was a fantastic team player, and they had the skills, but they maybe hadn't been in the job before to do all those things, but they wanted to go there, I would hire that person every day over someone that had all the skills and resume and they were a jerk. And going back to your comment earlier about soft skills and what you did in school, I think it's really hard to interview for or qualify soft skills. How did you build a process at scale because you were hiring so many people so quickly to figure out if they did have the lowest common denominator of traits that you thought were important to be successful within Tableau? Well, I certainly can't take credit for this because we had an incredible recruiting team. We also had phenomenal sales leadership and other people who were managers who were hiring, who felt very strongly about this. But many companies do interview predominantly for resume and skills and experience. 
it is critically important to interview for these behavioral traits and attributes. And there, there's a whole science around behavioral interviewing and how that is done and the kind of questions that it takes to do that. So we came up with different lists of questions around the behavioral interviewing. We trained everyone that was on the recruiting and interview circuit to know what those questions were and know how to assess for that. And then there was a section about these cultural fit or cultural additive and how well they would align with these values was part of the interview circuit. So when we were writing, when someone would interview and they'd send back their interview notes of hire, don't hire, maybe all these different things, this was a really big part of it. And some of the questions are, I mean, there's a whole list of questions that you can ask about it. Some of my favorite, which is hard to say here, because then if I'm ever involved in uh, in talking, then they'll know. I think my favorite question of all time that I ask in almost every interview, well, first I'll go over some of the other ones and I'll come to my favorite, but some of them is just, how would your best friend or your parents describe you? So this is a question I almost always ask. And it gives them a sense to get outside of themselves to explain how they're perceived. And there's very different ways that people explain that. But you can tell pretty quick if they're ego-based or if they're team-focused, if they're compassionate, if they're a good communicator, if they're a good friend or however they would do it. And if they're really focused on what they do, you learn a lot from that question. So that is a question that I really like. Another question is, Tell me about a time where there was a challenge on a team or there was a challenge in something you did and what do you do? So that tells you a little bit about skills and experience, but it talks about how they behave in conflict. Now, my favorite question, though, is I love asking people the question of, hey, you can answer this however you want. You can answer this question from a professional standpoint or from a personal standpoint, or you can answer both. But what is something in your life that you're most proud of? And I love that question because it it tears away all the guardrails. And actually, people often get really emotional. You see them get pretty vulnerable. People talk about all different things. Sometimes they'll talk about their kids or some project that they did or someone that was gotten sick that they helped them get through it. Or sometimes they'll talk about some really amazing professional accomplishment. But I'll tell you one story I do remember when I asked that question, what are you most proud of? We were interviewing at Tableau for a very senior sales leadership role. And this person was going to be responsible for managing a team, developing a whole bunch of folks that were working in a very hyper growth environment and operating on a team where we really had core values that were important to us. So this person had been interviewed by a whole bunch of other people, came to me. I asked this question and the person said, oh, what am I most proud of? I can tell you what I'm most proud of. I remember it was back about 20 years ago when people had fax machines and I was on one of my first sales leadership roles and I was the manager and it was the end of the quarter and it was the end of the day and we were going to miss our quarter and I had helped and swooped in to help close a deal that the rep couldn't close and the whole company thought we were not going to make it. And then I was able to save the deal and the deal came in and it showed up on the fax machine and I had everyone come huddle around the fax machine and the fax order came through and I picked it up and I showed everyone 
hey, look at this is where it's done. I was able to save the quarter. Look, we're all good. This is how good salesmanship is done. And I just thought, oh my gosh, this person's a complete train wreck. So that was the end of the interview. That was not a good answer for working at Tableau. So that's the story of you actually can learn a lot from those questions. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, another topic that you've written articles about that your experience is, is really littered with. I want to broaden the topic a little bit and then dive into kind of a few points within this. So I'd like to explore effective ways to be a leader, an advisor, a board member, a teacher. And there's very similar qualities in all of those things. Maybe I'll just start with, I noticed you have an article on your LinkedIn on how to get on a board. And there's 10 talking points within that. Do you want to talk about maybe just a few? Well, this is a constant process. So I, I find it sometimes ironic that I'm giving advice on this because I make so many mistakes along the way, whether it's with sales leadership or advising or being a board director, et cetera. It's a constant journey. So you never, absolutely never master this in any stretch. I have way more to learn still than I have learned along the way or I have put into place along the way. With this specifically of how to get on a board, I think you can take this to be similar to how you just take control of your career. And maybe that's a better way to say it because a lot of the listeners of this podcast, they're not going to be someone that wants to get on a board right now, but they are people that they want to have their next role. Maybe they want to be a founder. Maybe they need to network to be able to build better relationships, or maybe they want to be an advisor or board, whatever it may be. I think the first most important thing is to remember that you, each individual is in control of their own career. And people do things like they'll go get their education, they'll go get their schooling, whether it's college or a graduate degree, they'll go have their next role. And then often they just wait and sit back to do a whole bunch of good work and wait to be discovered, wait to be tapped on the shoulder. And that works for many people. But for me, that was not a strategy that I was willing to, to rely on. I wanted to be in control of my own destiny and know what could I do. So if I'm in control and I'm not going to just wait to be tapped, what is it that I can do? Well, to get on a board, so much of it does have to do, unfortunately, with your network. And you have to be top of mind for people to recommend you. And for jobs, recruiters work a lot. For board roles, recruiters are effective to a point, but in the end, usually companies end up selecting someone they already know or someone that's known to someone else on the board or in the executive team. So I realized, hey, I need to just get out there and meet people. And it was very helpful because I could go and help a whole bunch of folks along the way while I was continuing to build my network. So I would reach out to venture capitalists. I would reach out to other sales leaders. I reached out to experienced board directors. I reached out to CEOs to ask what would they be looking for at a board? But if I were to only do that, so the first is take control. The second is you got to get out there just like sales. It's all about law of averages because I have talked to at this point, probably 120 CEOs. Most people talk to four or five and then they get on a board. I've talked to, you know, 120 and I'm on four boards. So my hit rate, it does take a lot of hits. So that's the second piece. Third piece, though, is just like in sales, you got to give to get. 
and people end up asking for help, but then they're not giving anything. So the way I look at it is now my role is I'm really the connector and I like to connect people with other people, whether they're candidates, whether they're potential customers, whether they're investors, whoever they are, even if it's just people want to ask some questions about how to go build and scale. Sure. I'll answer some questions. So if I can help a whole bunch of other people, then I'll be able to inadvertently build my own network and credibility that way. And maybe a more foundational question. Why is it interesting for you to be on a board? That's a great question, Juman. I think there's a whole bunch of different ways that people can go. Some people like to continue to do those operational roles. Other people want to swoop in and do the consulting and advising. The board director is really operating at more of a strategic level, which has been challenging for me. I'm a super detailed operator. And now being able to help companies just to see around corners and to put that strategic framing and understand the questions that might come down the pipe. I like being a director because then I can help multiple companies at the same time, just like I like teaching, because then rather than just focusing on one company or one specific group, I can hopefully have more of an impact helping with more companies in more ways. I also think that it's one of those roles where for me, since I have done sales, I have helped companies of one company in specific, but now other companies scale. I am so passionate about building great teams and being very thoughtful about people. And then I do have this, I went to business school strategic consulting bent of being able to ask the right questions and see around corners. When I think about those four things, unique and appropriate go-to-market, scaling and scaling bigger, scaling out, scaling geographically, globally, scaling into new product lines, strategy and culture and people, all those things I think allow me to bring a unique, diverse voice to the board. And that also, at the same time, provides a new challenge for me to do something that I haven't done before. So that's the reason that I've chosen board directorship as one of the things I'm doing in this chapter. Yeah, one of many. I wish I had another hour, but that's a good place for us to wrap it. I'll tell you, one of the other things that you're doing is you're a professor at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. I wish I could have taken your class, you know, when I was in school. Oh, you're sweet. I love how people call me professor. It actually touches my heart when I have a student call me professor, because you know you can only be a professor if you have a PhD. So I do not have a PhD, but I'm an adjunct faculty, maybe you call adjunct professor. So look, call it what you want, but you're a teacher through and through. You've been teaching your entire career. <laughs> and so your students are really lucky. Oh, you're um, sweet. And, thank uh, you. I'm lucky. I learned from them. And the industry is lucky that we have an evangelist like you. So thank you. In wrapping, I ask a couple of questions every time. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how have you or your teams applied it in the past? Well, Greg, I talked about this a bit. I think that grit is how I started my sales career by carrying a 25 pound bag and going door to door and having doors absolutely slammed in my face. That is the most grit I've ever had in a job. And anyone that does door to door, you go hire those people. As long as they didn't quit, they have huge amount of grit. But I think now of what grit means is grit means you have to do the work. And building a company 
regardless of the stage, if it's a public company or you're just getting your first employee or your first customer, it's hard. And I was one that was willing to put in the hours. I worked 80 to 100 hours a week. Most of my time was at Tableau. I worked that when I was selling books. I'm definitely not a shining star example about work-life balance. I, I could have done better on that. But grit is you have to be willing to do the work. And two, you need to be able to do anything. You're not above anything in the company. Anything that you would ask from any single person on your team, whether it's doing a demo or doing something on the weekend or being able to jump on a support call, you need to be willing to do it. I might not have been the best equipped person to do it, but I certainly was willing to do that. So that hard work is going to carry you really far. That's the essence of grit. If someone wants to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? I'm out there on all the different social media. I say LinkedIn is the best. So just connect to me, follow me, and let's get started there. Thank you so much for your time, Kelly. Thank you, Jimon. This was really fun. I appreciate you inviting me to be on the show. Of course. Of course. Take care. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at JubinMir or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.